0: Santiago de Compostela, this pilgrim's path we trod. We receive the rain as blessing. The sun has praise from God.
1: Every year, thousands of people trek hundreds of miles from France to Spain as part of the Camino de Santiago. This pilgrimage to the legendary burial site of St. James is taken by Christians to connect more deeply with their faith, Non-religious travelers have been known to take the journey for the historic scenery as a challenging hike or to meet people from all over the world. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today we hear from a group that just returned from traveling the Camino de Santiago, and they're sharing details of their adventure. Good morning, everyone. Howdy. Good morning. morning. Okay, can we all go around and just tell me a little bit about yourselves, your names, and uh, where you're from? Uh, My name is Rachel Pod. I'm a a PhD student here at Fordham University from Texas
2: originally, and I've done the Camino de Santiago, at least the portion that Fordham does. I've done it three times.
0: Um, I'm David Myers. I'm a professor of history at Fordham, and I'm from El Paso, Texas, on the border with Mexico. So there are two Texans in this group.
3: (laughs) I'm Richard Juke, professor of history and medieval studies, and I've walked the the Camino de Santiago with the class a number of times.
4: My name is Megan DeFrank. I'm a recent Fordham graduate. I studied political science and Spanish, and I'm originally from North Brantford, Connecticut. My name is Christina Yannarino.
5: I'm a Bronx native. I'm a recent graduate of Fordham, and I studied history and Italian studies.
1: Now, I just want to throw this question out there. Why walk so long and so far for how long was the trip?
3: Richard here. We were walking for two weeks, carrying packs, and staying mostly in dorm-style accommodations. Why? Why not? <laughs> what inspired you guys to do this? Richard here again. It's partly it's the historic route. Now, you know, I, I speak as the as a professor who's done this and so there's a historical interest in it and the the chance to be outdoors in another culture. But I'm sure everybody has their own their own reasons for doing it.
2: This is Rachel. Dr. Myers said that this was a program that Fordham offers and would I be interested in doing it and my PhD is also medieval history, although not necessarily focused on Spain. And it just seemed like a really great opportunity to get outside my comfort zone. Also, hiking has not been just sort of physical activity in general. has not always <laughs> been my sort of favorite thing. Um, so it was a challenge. And I took Spanish in high school, and I really wanted to sort of get back to a level of fluency with that language. So um,
1: it checked several boxes for me. So you wanted to challenge yourself. That's yeah. a good reason. That's a good reason. Christina, how about you?
5: Well, actually, I had Dr. Myers as a sophomore. And he would always talk about it in our class. And so I approached him after and was like, basically, you have to make sure that you're teaching the course by the time I'm a senior because I wanted it to be like my farewell to Fordham. Ah. So, yeah. And then I got to know Dr.
4: Juke, which was amazing also.
1: Spending two weeks on the road with somebody, I think you'll get to know them pretty well, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Megan, how about you?
4: Um, yeah, I probably had similar reasons to Christina. I kind of wanted to take a step back to reflect on my time at Fordham and I had been studying Spanish and this was kind of a unique opportunity to immerse myself in a unique part of Spanish culture and learn more about the language and learn about the culture of the Camino and culture in Spain.
1: What was the most fun part you think of the
3: trip? Richard here wasn't the blisters. No, <laughs> I can guess. No, it's not the blisters, and it's and it's not necessarily the, the long hot days. Though we were fortunate this year, we had we had good weather most of the time. I think it's it's meeting and talking to uh, Fordham people and new people along the way. So meeting new it's people, the people is part of it. You know, I'm am his, a historian and did this originally as a historical exercise, but now it's it's about the people.
1: And speaking of the history, what what historic sites did you guys see that really ins- like inspired you or you thought it was beautiful?
3: I think all of them are
0: pretty impressive, but when you first see the cathedral in León, that's a very impressive site because it's a restored Gothic cathedral. And then when you finish off in Santiago and you are at the Basilica and you have those two as bookends, It's an extremely gratifying way of understanding just how medieval history worked in the lives of large numbers of people in northern Spain. But I think if I had to say what was the most beautiful site I saw on the Camino de Santiago, it wasn't so much the historical sites as some of the beautiful things we saw when we were at the tops of mountains. Mm -hmm. And I guess for our students, those may have proved to be far more spiritual and religious than the – reputedly religious sites themselves.
1: Did anybody go specifically to get some kind of spiritual enlightenment? This is Rachel.
2: Mm -hmm. My first year, I I think I went with a a desire to sort of um, get more, I guess, in touch with that part of the Camino. But then in the two years afterwards, I've gone along as sort of a chaperone. I would say that there's definitely something spiritual about the Camino for me. It's much more sort of about being present. Uh, in the moment and being aware of yourself and your impact on your environment and your environment's impact on you.
1: How easy or difficult was it to get in touch with, you know, as you said, kind of get in touch with yourself and and be in the moment? Because you have so much activity going on, right? there were restaurants there, other people hiking, people who live there. How easy or challenging was it for you to kind of be in the moment? Megan? I
4: think it really depended on the day. I think that as busy as some of the times were, there were also a lot of moments where you had the opportunity to be by yourself and take a step back. I know for me, I think one or two days, I walked a large stretch of that day by myself. And I really got to take a step back and think about my experience on the walk, but also think about things back home, whatever I really wanted to think about. And I think that that really allowed me to hone in to myself because you're by yourself in the middle of these mountains, there's really nothing else for you to do besides sit with your thought or walk with your thoughts.
1: Now, when you mean you're by yourself, you mean there's other people walking around you. It's just that you're walking alone in a crowd or you just took off from everybody?
4: Um I guess I sort of did take off from everybody at some points, but I think that there are parts of the Camino that are more crowded than other parts. So when we started walking, there weren't that many people around. Towards the end of the walk, there were a lot of people. And there were parts of the Camino also where people were more interested in talking to others than other parts of the walk. So kind of at the beginning when there are less people, there's more of a sense that I felt of community between the people that you didn't know on the Camino But towards the end, when there's so many people, they're kind of just in their own groups and they're not as interested in talking to others, from my experience at least.
0: This is David. One of the things to remember about the way we work the Camino is that we don't walk as a group. Um, The Mm. students walk at their own pace. It's impossible to do so because otherwise our FAST students, like Megan and Christina and Dr. Juge, would simply be drumming their fingers waiting for everybody to show up. So what happens is that we leave more or less together, but then people string out meet at cafes along the way, and then we gather together.
1: And that takes me to my question. Let's go all the way back. I guess you guys got on a plane.
3: Not together. Not together. <laughs> Not together. Not together. Not together. Not together. We, Not together. Meet Richard here. We we meet there and meet we disband there. in Santiago. Okay. You all meet where? We well, meet at the first hostel in Leon, mm-hmm. Spain. So it's about 200 miles from Santiago.
2: The first night, people are sort of filtering in. Once everybody's there, we'll all get together and have a meal. And we're actually in Leon for two days. And so the second night that we're there in Leon, uh, and we're leaving the next morning, beginning the process of the walk. We'll all get together and cook a meal together. And so it's a very sort of communal moment. So um, then, you know, we, the morning that we all get up together, we get up pretty early and we sort of uh, talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing that day. Because the first day is actually one of the hardest walks. I can't what? remember off the top of my head how many miles it is. Um,
0: it's, it, it's 32K, so that's over 20 miles.
2: Yeah.
1: And yeah. it's because of the length, it's the hardest or is the... Tr- the length is hard and it's that What's walk... the
5: first one.
2: Yeah. And that walk oh, okay. isn't particularly pretty because you have to walk out of León, which is a pretty major metropolitan center. So you're walking out of the city um, and you're not going through particularly picturesque places for a while. And then there's a section where you're walking along the highway. But eventually you get into sort of the rolling countryside and then it's, it's quite pretty. Um, and we end in a town, Hospital de Orbigo which uh, has a beautiful medieval bridge and is quite lovely. So it's worth it at the end.
3: There are historic sites all along the way, and we try to break the days to land in in a site that has something to to talk about.
1: Dr. Juke, are you explaining what we're seeing in the historic, you know, realm? Or is it sort of like, this is what you guys are going to see when you go, so... Uh,
3: We'll talk a little bit about that in advance, but it's Dr. Myers and I just step aside, and the students do the presentations in each Ah. town. We'll gather at the end of the day. Everybody's gone at their own pace. Mm -hmm. We gather at the end of the day, typically about 5 or 6 o'clock, and one person is responsible for that town or that site, or sometimes larger cities, there'll be a couple of -hmm. students responsible, and they will... Present to the group.
1: Okay. Um, there are our guides for the day. And Megan, Christina, what, what, where were you responsible for?
4: I did my presentation on Melide, which is two stops before Santiago. They're actually really famous for their octopus, okay. their boiled octopus. That was one of the biggest things. We all went out to eat together. And um, it's it actually, it's very good. I like octopus. Okay. Some people were more partial to it than others. Okay. It's actually really interesting because it's a landlocked city. But it's, you know, the octopus capital of <laughs> Spain. So, okay. and I tried to I tried to do research on why it was so popular for octopus, and I really couldn't find anything. There's no information about how this became known for their octopus. But nevertheless, the octopus there was wonderful, it was really and it was good. everywhere.
1: And they have octopus fishermen, I guess. I'm assuming Burperos. I yeah. Peros.
2: A pulpero is a person who is pulperero, a, a, pulperero, yeah. a pulperero is someone who, who fishes for octopus. Okay.
4: In Moliday there's this one fountain in the center of the town. I think it's called Fuente de los Cuatro Caños. Okay. And basically uh, did you get
1: shaking his head. Is that, that that's yeah. right? Okay.
4: Um so basically it's used as a centerpiece for the town now, but back when it was the medieval pilgrimage or when people used to walk it that's where they would get water. So they would stop in this town so they could actually have a drink because they probably didn't have backpacks that had water bottles or Christina had a water pouch that had, like, a tube coming out so she could drink at all times. So this was really a central place for worship because they had a nice chapel and a cathedral, but also just a place where they could stop and get water.
1: Christina, you also had a presentation to give, correct?
4: I did, yes. I
5: presented in santiago and because it's such a huge project um, i was one of three people and we decided to coordinate and sort of try to look at what the first pilgrims experience would have been like reaching santiago and i presented on the monasterio de san Pao, and i think san palayo in galician it was responsible for the beginnings of camino worship because St. James's remains were discovered in the ninth century. And so between the ninth century and the construction of the cathedral, you had the very beginnings of Camino infrastructure where that Benedictine monastery was responsible for organizing worship and, you know, taking care of the first pilgrims that were coming for St. James's remains.
1: And you said you were supposed to kind of get a feel for what the first pilgrims were like. What do you think it was like for them? Is that a fair question? That's Anybody lo- can answer this question. That's a loaded question.
0: <laughs> um, <clears throat> David here. If you want a sense of the first... Pilgrims experience when they arrive in Santiago, just go to the roof of the cathedral. There is on top of the roof an incinerator, a large pit. Uh, This is a stone roof that was actually used for defense, but there is a large incinerator that is no longer used up there, and that incinerator, that pit, was used to burn Pilgrims' clothes. Uh, when they arrived in Santiago. And we could turn that into a wonderful, penitential, new birth kind of uh, image. But the fact of the matter is that I think that medieval pilgrims, when they arrived in Santiago, were a little bit ripe, and they were bringing diseases with them from all over Europe. And I think the canons of the cathedral wanted to get those things burned and get them into their new white baptismal uh, clothes as quickly as possible. I think that tells you a lot about the experience of arriving in Santiago for the for the first pilgrims.
1: Right. Now I read somewhere that there was a monastery that had a connection to Hitler. Where was that and what was the connection? (laughs) Oh goodness.
0: That would be Samos, that is a monastery that is between Tria Castella and Sarria, one of the places we stop it 's an argument that Hitler yeah that Hitler actually was not uh, killed at, in a bunker in Berlin and then uh, uh, burned by his chauffeur, but that he and maybe some other Nazis escaped um, through Spain probably with the help of Franco, and that one of the escape routes went through the monastery of Samos, which itself burned down in uh, the mid-1950s.
2: Rachel here, the sort of outline of the story, right, is that instead of dying in the bunker, he and you know some of his buddies get sort of ferreted via the help of other people um, south into Spain. Then he is living in the monastery in Samos, um, pretending to be a monk, until his um, sort of passage to Argentina or Brazil or wherever can be arranged, and then of course the fact that the monastery burns down is you know only more proof of the cover up, and not just
1: ah. that it was flammable. Gotcha. Any other stories like this that you guys can share? Interesting stories.
3: The Camino de Santiago attracts stories. Pilgrims walking along have imagined histories for many spots along the way, and even the the destination itself is is legendary. Going to the, the tomb of, of Santiago Saint James is legendary in many ways, so there are stories about the uh, Roland, who was one of charlemagne 's knights from the ninth century. There are stories about France, Saint Francis walking the Camino. There are stories mm. uh, every site along the way develops its own packages of legends, just as our modern pilgrims in our classes we, we pass stories back and forth as we go it 's inevitable.
2: Yeah, Rachel here. Every site that we attend now, you know, after doing it for a while, it's like, oh, this is the church in Rabanal where this one person from our group a couple of years ago fainted. So the stories accumulate uh, and continue to be sort of passed along our own particular group of pilgrims.
1: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today, my guest and I are discussing a little walking tour they took from France to Spain. Fordham professors Dr. Richard Juke and Dr. David Myers, along with students Christina Yonarino and Rachel Pod, discuss walking the Camino de Santiago. It seems that, you know, with all this travel and all these different places, were there any particular rules or laws that you were unfamiliar with as you're taking this pilgrimage?
0: Well, I would say, this is David, uh, I would say there weren't unfamiliar laws. It is, after all, part of the European Union, and uh, a large number of the people uh, who travel are Europeans. We could get into the superiority of European health care if we wanted to have a political debate, but uh, we're not going to do that. So f- less than, than rules and laws, which are very similar and very familiar all across Europe, are the customs of the Camino itself and then the customs of the individual places we visit. Because so many people walk on it now and because it has such a rich tradition and also because at a certain point it gets crowded, there are – Unofficial rules or unofficial customs that govern it we didn 't have this uh, experience because we have to make reservations in advance but one of the one of the unwritten rules of the Camino is that if you go to a communal or to a municipal hostel, you are guaranteed a bed that is absolutely critical to the success of the Camino. And then on top of that, you can get there before the albergue or the hostel opens. But what you do is you put your backpack in a line there. And the rule of thumb is that people enter the albergue the hostel on the basis of the order of the backpacks. So it, may, it maintains some order, and you can see how that would work. And then the other part of it, the final part of it, is that You can do the Camino by foot, you can do the Camino by bike, or you can do the Camino by horseback, which just sounds great. But bikers are always the last people let in to uh, hostels and albergues on the theory that, A, well, Bikers are just unpleasant, but B, um, the theory really is that if you're a biker and you show up at a municipality and you need a bed, the person who's walking would have to walk another 20 kilometers to find another bed, whereas the biker can just get back on his or her bike and go on. So bikers are always the last people allowed in albergues. It's not just because they're just deviants and unpleasant. um, It's because they can always find another place to stay. Sounds like you're a biker. No, I'm not. Actually, I'm an anti-biker, but uh, Richard Duke and I have a long debate about this we're not going to go into.
2: As long as the cyclists have a bell or a horn and they'll let you know that you're, they're coming, it's not so bad. Okay. It's just when you're walking and you're in your head or having a conversation and someone roars, roars up on the you. side, that can be a little, <laughs> a little bit. distracting.
3: Richard, here, I was just going to add that, that there are the cultural rules in Spain, those things like not leaving tips, you know, just sort of rounding it up, that kind of little things. I think we those all, are interesting, we all learn, and they're important. They're, they're just a different way of doing things. Or when you walk into a bar, and we're in and out of these wayside bars all the time, you greet everybody. You say hello as you walk in, basically. So these there's different ways. So it's of, like cheers, hi, yes, no exactly. sort
1: of. <laughs> Now, you guys said that there were times where you were in the rooms together. There were times you were in the rooms with lots of other people. Were you all friendly or friends or know each other before this trip?
2: Rachel here. So before we go, in the spring semester, there's a class session. And you get to know each other a little bit during those times. There's also practice walks. So we do walks on the weekends. My favorite one is the one to um, City Island because there's a really nice place to get brunch there. So we start in the morning, walk out there, have brunch, come
1: back. You walk from the Bronx from here, mm-hmm. f- Fordham, mm-hmm. to City Island? Yeah. Which is like a half an hour ride in a car. Yeah. So how long did it take you to walk there?
2: Yeah. Oh God, I don't, a couple hours?
3: Richard, it's almost exactly from, from Fordham, it's like 6.2 miles Yeah. Okay. To, to the City Island Diner. Which yes. was nothing
1: like that twenty mile first day, right? No, no. But and it's, then we walk back. Yeah, and then you walk ah, back. But okay. you—it's
2: just sort of to get yourself prepared and and sort of figure out what your limits are and what you—you uh, you know how ready you are for it.
1: And find out who's going to drop out now. Uh, sort
2: of, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Um, but even on those walks, I feel like you don't really get to know each other the way that you're going to until you're in Spain. Until Why? You, you're spending so much time together, there's a shared experience. There's also this sort of idea that, you know, yes, of course, all pilgrims should help all other pilgrims. But we're sort of first and foremost, a little bit looking out for each other. And we want to get to, you know, as you walk past, hey, are you okay? Or like, hey, I'm going to stop up here and get a coffee if you want to join. So there's just you really get to sort of know each other in a different way in Spain actually doing it than you can get to know that someone here.
1: And I would assume, you know, it's it's great that you have all these people together and you're getting to know each other. Were there any incidents of let's say obstacles that's happened in the in the group? Things there, you had to learn to get moments, over? Well,
2: there are moments where you you get frustrated with someone or you get you just need to walk by yourself for a little while or um yeah, I mean it's just sometimes with it's like any family that's spending a lot of time together and Going through something together you're there's just sometimes times where you need to step back and be by yourself so you don 't throw someone off a mountain. That was
1: the, I was thinking just speaking that Speaking from personal <laughs> experience
2: well it 's
0: true I mean this is david uh, one of the things every year people do find best friends and more uh, while they're while they 're together in the Camino, but every year. One of the issues, one of the things you learn about people is uh, who snores and who doesn't. Oh <laughs> Lord, have mercy! Um, you learn who plays "Stars and Stripes Forever" on his cell phone as his alarm clock <laughs> oh. at six a.m., and that's the person you kind of want to throw off a mountain on occasion. Um, you learn you learn lots of very small details that in the ag- that at each moment can be annoying, possibly, but in the aggregate, they're actually part of the experience. And I think when we look back at it, there were lots of moments that. In at that particular time, we you went to roll your eyes or something, but in the aggregate, when you look back on it, you think that was part of being on the Camino and that was part of getting to know this person or getting to know myself,
1: Richard. You're you're retiring, so this is right. your last trip, um, the last trip you're taking with the students. So, what will you miss the most? That's a good question.
3: Oh, I'm, I'm being signaled that I'll miss the pulpo, <laughs> the, the octopus. <laughs> but I'll, I can always get that.
1: Well, well, what would you miss it's, it's outside of the octopus?
3: Well, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when I started walking, I was walking as a historian, that, that I'm interested in things medieval. But now I realize it really is what, what we remember are are the people we meet and the people we, we walk with. And so that's, that's what I'll miss. I'll miss that experience each year a new group and the groups we also keep in touch over the years.
1: And um David you're taking over the course, correct?
3: Taking over in in
0: some way, yes, but Richard will always be the boss.
1: And are you going to keep the course as is are you going to tweak it in any way? What do you think?
0: One of the one of the basic moves that we will see this in years upcoming that is a move from the past is that we have thought the students wanted to be connected, and we've thought of ourselves as wired and doing the student's guide to the community of Santiago and having a web presence and you know being able to look at uh, different things and project them out. And one of the things we have discovered is that um, the students are less interested in connectivity on the Camino than we might have imagined. The students are actually looking for their own experience and we've realized that if you have an app on your phone for the Camino, it means you have to have your phone all the time. So we're we're trying to deal with the fact that we know our students want a lighter uh, presence and they want more time to be together and more time to ruminate and more time and more space for themselves rather than for the whole wide world. So that's something we're trying to negotiate a little bit in terms of how we work the Camino.
1: Do you think that's because of of social media and the way things are structured where we are sort of independently in our social media zones, whether it's on Facebook or whatever the next thing is that it's more more independent
0: well, I mean part of it is that the development of the smartphone has changed lots of things, but when you look at an app that you put on your smartphone, you all think, "Oh, this is going to be really helpful but it's like an addiction. The app doesn't want you to put your phone down. The app exists to connect you to your phone, not to connect you to the world. Um so there's that as something that we need to think about. But in terms of social media, I'd like I I'd, I'd much rather hear from Megan, Christina and Rachel on that subject since I'm after all old and they're after all young and so social media is what they were born and bred on.
4: Um this is Megan. So I think when you're on the camino everybody has different goals and has different mindsets going into it. So there were some people in our group that wanted to disconnect during the Camino. And so I know a few people in our group that didn't go on social media for the whole two weeks that we were out. I mean, every place we stay has Wi-Fi and so you can be connected, you know, still talk to your parents, whatever you want to do. So it's really each person, the degree that they stay connected and what they want to do. And I think everybody benefits differently. If someone thinks that they're going to benefit from staying disconnected, I definitely think that has validity. But I know pretty much no one had their phone out when we were walking. You know, some people stopped to take some photos um, because you really can't resist. Sometimes you really can't because the views are so beautiful. But no one was walking with their phone out. You know, you're walking around New York, you're going to see people just looking at their phone screen, not even looking at the street. But everybody in our group and Pretty much everybody I can see. No one was walking around with their looking at their phone. So I think it's really more about being in the moment, as Rachel mentioned earlier, just focusing really on yourself and like in that moment, the interactions you're having.
1: Christina, connected or disconnected from social media?
5: A happy medium. Happy medium. <laughs> because at first I did try to use the app that we tried to develop for the course, but then I definitely use my phone personally for music at times, but um I remember on, uh, Megan and I were on, and Louisa, um, the other chaperone, I was on a walk to Melina Seca, and, you know, you're basically climbing up a mountain on that walk, and that was one of those moments that Megan was saying where it's absolutely, you can't resist taking your phone out and just looking at the, I mean, we were singing um, Lord of the Rings of the Misty Mountains because it was, You know, it was overcast that day and it was just absolutely gorgeous. And so things, moments like that, you can't help but take out your phone and take a picture. But otherwise, pretty much a happy medium. I didn't want to stay too connected.
1: David, what kind of student do you think should sign up for this kind of pilgrimage?
0: Well, we never know at the beginning. We put out an information bulletin, and then there's word of mouth, and then students uh, show up, and we make choices. But the reality is this is not easy, and it's a hard walk, and the students know that. Uh, It isn't a picnic, and it isn't just an easy stroll. So the kinds of students who are coming are really very self-selecting and very motivated, And students who really want to move a little bit away from the standard path of their college lives or the standard things that people can do. We still have a lot of students who want to finish up their college life in kind of a reflective way um, and think about what their lives at Fordham. So it's a self-selecting group that has proven always to be extraordinarily self-reliant, which is something that we have always tried to um, encourage, self-reliant, independent determined and strong they are all not physically necessarily although they're all capable of doing it but every year i go on the camino and i look out and i think these kids are not going to make it they are going to give up uh at the minute they see the mountains near molina Saca, Uh and every year they persist and every year they work through blisters and every year they look down at their poor beaten feet Uh, and shake their heads, and then they put their packs on in the morning and they go on. And in Santiago, they prove that they are a strong and resilient and outgoing and quite compassionate towards each other group. And those are the kinds of students we we bring along, Um, and those are the kind of students we want. We're glad we always get them.
1: I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Richard Juke, Dr. David Myers, and Fordham students Christina Yannarino and Rachel Pod. I'd also like to thank my producer, Marina Koch. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.